This is In Conversation from Apple News Today. I'm Duarte Geraldino. Every weekend, we're taking you deeper into the best journalism on Apple News. On the evening of September 11, 2001, while the rubble of the Twin Towers in Lower Manhattan was still settling, Republicans and Democrats in Washington took a moment to move past their differences. They stood side by side on the Capitol steps and sang, God Bless America. God bless America, my home sweet home. When you look at that footage and you hear them sing, you get this overwhelming sense of national unity. Nearly 20 years later, pro-Trump rioters charged over those same steps at the Capitol. They wanted to overturn the results of a Democratic presidential election. The rioters were calling for the vice president's death, and members of Congress would later say they worried the mob was going to kill them. There's a sort of, to me, a real feeling of not only irony, but an, oh my God, we were once this, and now we're this. That's filmmaker Michael Kirk. He's the director of the new frontline documentary, America After 9-11. His film takes us from that coming together after an act of terrorism to an attack on our democracy by American citizens. This documentary lays out how the U.S.'s response to 9-11 through three administrations contributed to mistrust in the U.S. government and the press, how it led to further political polarization and an upending of what were seen as American values, and how it all came to a head on January 6th. You can watch Kirk's documentary, America After 9-11, on Apple News. In my conversation with Kirk, he explains why Democrats supported a Republican administration's decision to invade Iraq and Afghanistan. That support, that choice, changed the course of the two decades that would follow. Fear. Fear entered the political mainstream of America on 9-11 and a month later when anthrax is suddenly appearing in a Senate office building and other places when we're all hearing the news, especially cable news out there ringing the bell saying there's going to be a dirty bomb, there's going to be attacks here and there. You start to feel tremendously insecure as Americans. And I think from the very beginning, That's when the Democrats and the Republicans recognized they had to come together and uh, support where the young president was, uh, the young Republican president was uh, taking America at the time because division and debate would not do it. The American people were already unsettled enough. Unsettling the American people would happen uh, slowly but surely over the next 20 years. When we look at Bush as a president, How did he frame this war? And what role did he see the U.S. playing? Good and evil, policemen of the world. Remember, for anybody who wasn't yet paying close attention to politics, there was a big debate once the Soviet Union had fallen and and it had become Russia again, that we were the superpower in the world. We were clearly the good guys against what, what used to be called by Ronald Reagan the evil empire. That's Russia now. It was easy then to imagine, well, what could we really do? What should we do? What should we be worried about? And of course, George Bush's administration in those first nine months was not at all worried. 
about terrorism. The CIA, or at least parts of it, were worried about it. The FBI, or at least parts of it, were worried about it. But not the White House, not the president. And it was a big surprise when it happened, and we weren't ready for that. And Bush's response, of course, feeling responsible for the 3,000 people, or nearly 3,000 people who died at the World Trade Center, he bought the option offered to him by the Central Intelligence Agency, which is a fast attack light force, not hundreds of thousands of military troops. Just, we'll go in, we'll cut the head off the snake. In one case, we'll bring Osama bin Laden's head back on dry ice, is what the head of the CIA counterterrorism task force, Cover Black, uh, said. There was a kind of bloodlust going on at the time. And I think If you would have asked the vast majority of Americans at that moment, they would have agreed that that's what we should have done, that that was the job. So right after the attacks, we have fear pervading American society. Bush was insisting we were the good guys in this fight. But your film shows Vice President Dick Cheney taking a particular approach, one that many people argue undercuts American values. How would you describe Cheney's response to 9-11? Yeah, Cheney was terrified. Cheney thought the sky is falling and we have to do whatever we can, whatever we have to do by any means necessary to protect America, that he swore this was not going to happen on his watch. And if the president had one perspective, which was, you know, we're going to try to be good people. We're going to try to be the good guys. Cheney didn't care whether we were the good guys or not. Cheney wanted to protect America at any cost. He announced it to the people. We also have to work the sort of the the dark side, if you will. We've got to spend time in the shadows and in the intelligence world. Uh, A lot of what needs to be done here will have to be done quietly without any discussion using sources and methods uh, that are available to our intelligence agencies uh, if we're going to be successful. Within hours, it was in play. Rules were changed at the Justice Department. Authorizations were granted to military and intelligence groups that would, over the months, allow them to do black site prisons, allow them to begin the process of extraordinary rendition, which means going into sovereign nations and grabbing people who you thought was a terrorist and dragging them out and and taking them to Guantanamo and other black site prisons, secret prisons, torturing them to try to get information. All of that was fair game. So as we are on the hunt for bin Laden, and as we are making our way into Iraq, the U.S. press is covering all this. And when it comes to this media coverage leading up to the invasion of Iraq, the big press, the major papers, the networks, in hindsight, they all look pretty bad. How did so many reporters get it so wrong, Michael? Well, they're Americans. You know, in a lot of cases, they're Americans. The politics of fear not to be underestimated. Everybody was afraid. Everybody had been wrong about terrorism, and now they were not going to be wrong about chemical warfare or a nuclear weapon or whatever Saddam Hussein may have cooking out in the desert. So everybody joined the parade. If they weren't cheerleading, they were certainly not asking super hard questions. And in lots of ways, some of their best reporters were succumbing to the lies from their sources at the Justice Department, the Defense Department, and the White House. So when it becomes clear that this claim that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction was false, a lie, how do you think it changed how people saw news media? The news media itself is the best judge of that because suddenly they realized that 
that their enterprise, their accountability factors had not been, those meters had not been turned on. And boy, did they turn them on. Fox News was rising. Right-wing radio was rising in defense of what was happening, but in uh, in so many other ways. The press became, uh, went, went the other way, and justifiably given how wrong uh, the assertions were. And when it was all put in the hands of Colin Powell, Secretary of State Colin Powell, you know, the most revered political figure in America, when that was all in his hands to make the sale in front of the United Nations, the world watched, the press watched. Saddam Hussein already possesses two out of the three key components needed to build a nuclear bomb. Saddam Hussein is determined to get his hands on a nuclear bomb. And when it was wrong, when it was a lie, when his own reputation was so profoundly diminished, I think people in the country, if you want to point to one big moment where everybody said, wait a minute, it was the moment you didn't find weapons of mass destruction. It's the big beacon that gets turned on where suddenly, oh my God, everybody, including the press, including regular people, including people in the military are like, oh my God, what have we got ourselves into here? And the rest, as they say, is all falling action. Was he misled? Or do you think he knew the information he was conveying that he was selling was false? Well, we asked him and he said, look, I, uh, I was misled by the by the, I, I believe the intelligence services, meaning really the CIA. He had spent a weekend, a bloody weekend, out at Langley with the CIA as they were trying to sell him, they and the vice president's staff trying to sell him the bill of particulars about why we should go to war. And he was very skeptical, appropriately so. But in the end, the thing nobody will ever really understand, he goes along including him. And when we ask him, so what's up with that? Why was it you? Why were you up there? He said, I look, that's my job. I'm the salesman on behalf of the administration. When it didn't work out, I was heartbroken. When it was wrong, I was heartbroken. Well, I'll bet he was. I'll bet he was. Because an awful lot of the world and an awful lot of Americans lost a lot of trust in the institutions of the government and, of course, in Secretary Powell himself. I want to move on to this bloodlust that you mentioned earlier. Your film includes testimony from a Guantanamo Bay detainee. We now know conditions were horrible in Guantanamo. Yeah. But how did the U.S. portray those conditions in the beginning? Well, Donald Rumsfeld was the spokesman. He'd served in the military as a pilot and flown off of the naval station there in Guantanamo. And he he one day is asked, well, what about Guantanamo? My God, these people, the condition, he says, come on, Guantanamo, compared to the battlefields of Afghanistan or the rocks and mountains of, is a, a paradise. Guantanamo, you know, it was, he, he portrayed it almost as a club med almost. And of course, when you were there and you saw the conditions people were living in, essentially they were outdoor cages like for dogs and on a concrete slab you know the sanitary conditions were horrible and and of course you have young and terrified people there just terrible you put a big emphasis on how after 9-11 the u.s government was apparently more vocal about its willingness to torture people how did we so quickly pivot to waterboarding and black site prisons was our taste for violence new or just uncloaked 
This is one of those questions that all things are true. There were some people, a lot of FBI agents who were involved in those early interrogations who walked away. The FBI eventually walked away. One FBI agent we talked to said he, when the prisoners were being, you know, interrogated, using the word loosely, actually, they were playing sounds all night long out into the yard of uh, rabbits being killed, screaming that terrible scream or Marilyn Manson music, uh, you know, at, at full volume. Guys were sleep deprived and chained up and then they're brought into this room and uh, somebody's asking them lots of questions. And there were FBI agents we talked to who said, uh, I had to get out of there. I wasn't going to, I think this is illegal behavior. I didn't want to have anything to do with it. And by the way, we were never going to get a case made in front of any jury if these people got any kind of lawyers because of the way they were being treated. But there was no intention of trials or anything else. That's why they were being kept off U.S. soil. By the time Bush is getting ready to leave the White House, Americans are feeling disillusioned with these wars. We all learned about the steps the American government took that went against its core values. Many people are feeling like the USA entered Iraq, in particular under false pretenses, and that the government misled its citizens. People are being killed, and many Americans just want these wars to end. So they elect Barack Obama. Michael, in your film, someone you spoke with says... Barack Obama wouldn't have been elected president without 9-11. Explain that. Yes, that quote comes from uh, Ben Rhodes, who was his one of his top aides with him at all times, wrote speeches for him, was at the National Security Council, a very high-ranking and devoted employee of Barack Obama, who says he knows that if Bush and America hadn't turned toward Iraq, Obama would not be president. He says America would have not elected a black man president of the United States under uh, other circumstances. This was the moment where a man who steps up, as opposed to Hillary Clinton, his primary opponent in the primaries, who was in favor of the war and had stood up, and we show her statement in the film, stood up and, and said, you know, we've got to go to war. We've got to do these things in Iraq. We've got to stop Saddam Hussein. So here's Barack Obama, the one guy who back in 2002 said, absolutely not, publicly said, we're not going to do that. So everybody thinks Barack Obama is the anti-war candidate. He is elected, obviously for many other reasons as well. But Ben said primarily, he thought it was the fact that Americans, at least Democrats, and those people who were called the Republican Obama supporters, the independents, went with Obama rather than uh, rather than McCain, who feels much more like a member of the Republican war establishment. So Obama takes office, and there's all this hope and expectation that he's going to end the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Why didn't it work? I mean, in the first place, he was not what everybody thought he was, which was an anti-war candidate. He was going to come in and shut the wars down. In the first place, that would have been practically, apparently, impossible. You can't just turn the spigot off. And remember, fear is driving Americans. So if there's the slightest chance that coming out of Afghanistan or Iraq, even as much as you hate the war, there will be a terror attack that would take down Dallas or something, you, as president of the United States, would be done, your political career would be over. So you've got to carefully peel it all back, roll it off. He kind of puts Iraq in the hands of the generals and keeps it over to the side and says, I have a plausible reason to believe 
we can turn our attention back to Afghanistan. He brings in General Stanley McChrystal, one of the toughest guys. His staff called themselves the uh, snake eaters. They went in and they made an assessment of what it would take to win in Afghanistan. And they came back and said 80,000 troops. He was shocked. Uh, he said, I can't, I can't do that the American people. But he says, I'll give you 30,000. But I'll add a caveat, which is we've got to be out of there in 18 months. So you send a signal to the Taliban, we're coming in, but we're not really in for very long. Just wait us out. And you send 30,000 Americans in the face of that. Not enough to do whatever McChrystal thought it was possible to do, but certainly enough to get a lot of them hurt. And maybe your reputation as a, as a war president sullied. And McChrystal at one moment calls it a bleeding ulcer. I'm not winning there. I'm losing guys. I'm not winning there. And Obama shakes his head and says, oh my God, we can't walk away, but I don't want to do this anymore. We also can't win. So that's when the phrase mow the lawn gets started, because uh, that's when Obama is advised and realizes, if I leave and an attack comes from there, some future terrorist attack comes from there, my presidency's done and I've got a big domestic agenda I want to get done. So what we'll do is we'll we'll mow the lawn. We'll get enough CIA in there. We'll get enough military in there. They'll be watching closely. That's the Obama experience of it. And he he decides to settle for drones to do most of the killing, the so-called sanitized over-the-sky Drone warfare, he ramps that up in a way that's like 10 times as many as as Bush. And in other words, he's got just a mess on his hands after a couple of years of the first two couple of years of his presidency. Your film makes the point that many people in the U.S. feel betrayed by the Obama administration. Then Trump takes office. How does Trump use 9-11 to his advantage? He sees it as a wedge issue. Trump, who, remember... In this process, division and distrust are growing in America. There's a real anti-war feeling, and not just by liberal elite Democrats, but by uh, people who fought the war, people whose children fought the war, and wives and husbands fought the war, mothers and fathers who fought the war. Many three, four terms over there. There's an anger in the society that Trump absolutely recognizes. He sees it as a wedge issue. He wants what he wants to do more than anything is say, I'm going to do something completely different. He claims that Obama is the father of ISIS. He tags Obama with all of the bad things about the war and says, I'm going to go in and clean it up. Don't tell me we can't defeat ISIS. That's ridiculous. I'm going to do that. He, of course, doesn't do that. He gets ensnared like everybody else. Uh, what his real plan was, was to bring the war home, to capitalize on the division, the distrust, the polarization in the society, and to start using the language in the first place, the sort of anti-Muslim, makes it a racial issue, makes it a religious issue, talks about the insecurity of our borders, starts to play on the politics of fear again, but in a different way, aiming those politics of fear at groups like Antifa, Black Lives Matter, especially after the George Floyd murder and the Black Lives Matter people, and many, 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 many more hitting the streets, themselves distrustful and unhappy with the government. So there's Trump encouraging governors to roll out the National Guard, making it look like uh, a war on the streets of America. And that all coincides with his 
re-election campaign in 2020. And that is what Donald Trump brought to the America after 9-11 events. So Trump loses. And on January 6th, we have this insurrection. You mentioned earlier how Al-Qaeda was aiming to take the Capitol, but it ends up being the insurrectionists. Is there an irony there? Well, uh, yes, uh, irony for sure. Maybe more than that. Maybe a, a real signal. You know, we went out into the world to, and said we were bringing democracy to authoritarian regimes, to countries that, and, and regular people who had never experienced it. They were going to have the taste of freedom, and America was going to bring it with us. That's who we were. The greatest irony is that uh, there they are. There it is. Our democracy. Not their democracy, not the one we were uh, exporting, but our own democracy is in unbelievable peril at the moment that Donald Trump issues the big lie about the results of the election and says it was stolen. Make no mistake, this election was stolen from you, from me, and from the country. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. Our country has had enough. We will not take it anymore. The phrases of the politics of fear are designed to tap distrust, disenfranchisement, ring those bells that have been ringing all the way back to weapons of mass destruction and Colin Powell, the torture memos, the Abu Ghraib photos, the world walking away from us. And there it was on display that afternoon in Washington as uh, his supporters, many decked out in battle fatigues, and uh, they were dressed for war. And uh, they walked up Pennsylvania Avenue and uh, history would unfold and would unfold in a way that, as I said earlier, and I think our film really reveals, it's like knowing what happened on January 6th and watching the events that I think we roll out in the film, it's almost impossible not to believe that this was brewing, that the democracy was increasingly in peril, and that this moment when these insurrectionists did what Al-Qaeda couldn't do and were inside the building hunting to kill the vice president of the United States of America, that that would be the logical conclusion of all of our adventures for 20 years in the Middle East, astonished me enough that we ask everybody we interviewed, did it happen? What is that? Do you feel the connection? Because it seems almost implausible. And they say, yes, yes, absolutely. There it is. This is the manifestation of what you do when for 20 years you lie to people. You don't follow the order. The things about the society that you believe in, your values have been diminished. You don't believe the politicians. You don't believe the press. You believe that something totally nefarious can happen. A presidential election can be stolen and 80 million votes can come out of thin air. You believe it because you've seen such astonishing other things pass before your field of vision in the last 20 years. Michael Kirk is a documentarian whose latest film examines the link between the September 11th attacks and the Capitol insurrection. Michael, thank you so much for being on Apple News today. You're very welcome. Thanks for the great questions. 
Michael Kirk's documentary, America After 9-11, can be viewed now on the Apple News app. You can find the link by typing Apple News Today in the search bar and then tapping on the show notes page for this episode.